Heavenly Father, thank you for the technology that allows us to meet together this morning online. And as we reflect on your word, uh, we thank you also that your spirit is with us wherever we are. And we thank you that your spirit helps us to hear you speaking to us personally through your word. So please, we pray, help us play our part uh, to shut out any distractions, to resist the urge to multitask, and just to focus on you and your word and to listen for your voice. So please, we pray, uh, speak to us in a living and active way this morning. And may we be encouraged in the journey of life as your people uh, through this text. Amen. Well, as uh, Stephen has mentioned, today we are drawing together the strands of Job's story. Uh, we've been tracking with him, of course, for over two months. And we come now to the final section in chapter 42. And it's here that we see the conclusion of the matter. Uh, the darkness of his suffering recedes and the dawn of a new chapter to his life begins. And yet, we're going to see there is more for us to observe and to learn from his life. Uh, particularly this morning, we're going to learn about forgiveness, uh, about purpose in suffering, and also hope. So let's look at the first of those, uh, forgiveness, and particularly uh, the forgiveness of Job's friends. Uh, in Job, the main body of the book has been a quest for wisdom. It's been the search for the answer to explain Job's suffering. And from chapter 3 to chapter 37, uh, Job and his friends uh, discuss and debate. And as we've seen, uh, his friends misguidedly advocate uh, what is, in effect, the retribution principle. Uh, they say, uh, Job, you must be reaping what you have already sown. Uh, your suffering is, must be God's punishment for your sin. Uh, their counsel is, in effect, what is currently called karma. Uh, what goes around comes around. And in response, Job rejects their viewpoint and he protests his innocence. And he cries out to God for vindication and also for explanation. And as we've seen last week, uh, two weeks ago, finally, uh, God shows up and he silences the human debate. And God is the last word. God speaks true and pure wisdom. And God renders his verdict as to who has been right and to who has been wrong. Chapter 42, verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. So that is what Job's friends do. And Job, in turn, prays that God would forgive them. And God, in turn, accepts Job's prayer. As I reflected on this, I would suggest that it was not just God who had to forgive Job's friends. Because as I thought about it, I realized that Job would also have had to forgive his friends. 
uh, they hadn't treated him well. And Job had every reason to be deeply offended by their behaviour. He had been wounded deeply by them. And maybe that's why uh, God in his wisdom makes their forgiveness conditional on Job's request. Because for Job to ask for them to be forgiven, he had to, of course, firstly forgive them in his own heart. Uh, Job's friends had been complete chumps. Uh, they had started off well. They had sat with him in silence for seven days, but they didn't continue to hold their tongues. And their sensitive, silent sympathy eventually gave way to crass, calamitous counsel. Uh, sometimes when we suffer, our friends may be grossly insensitive to us. They may be chumps. They may be crassly insensitive. And when we are raw and bleeding in a place of suffering, people can sometimes say the dumbest things. Uh, like Job, we will be faced with the choice as to whether we will forgive them or not. A man called Joseph Bailey suffered a number of tragedies in his life. Uh, he and his wife lost three of their seven sons at young ages. He wrote a book called The View from the Hearse. And in this book, he shared some helpful meditations on his own journey for grieving the death of a loved one from a Christian point of view. Uh, right after one of his sons died, he wrote this, and I quote, I was sitting torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings and why it happened of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things that I knew were true. I wished he'd go away, and finally he did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more. He listened when I said something. He answered briefly, he prayed simply, and he left and I hated to see him go. I remember clearly the day I came home at the end of my first term at university. It was mid-December 1984. And as I walked through the door, I was given a message to go to the local hospital. Uh, my girlfriend's father had collapsed. Uh, not long after I arrived, uh, he was declared dead. Uh, he had suffered a heart attack. It came completely out of the blue. He was only in his 50s and he was completely healthy as far as everyone had known. I was given the job of transporting my girlfriend and her sister, who were both in their late teens, home. Uh, they were both in a state of shock. Uh, I didn't know how to respond. And this was the first time as a young adult that I'd ever been in this situation. Uh, should I be silent or should I talk? And if I should talk, should I talk about what had just happened with them or talk about anything else but? That being a chump, I opted to talk 10 to the dozen about anything else I could possibly think of. Uh, looking back, I can see how I was grossly insensitive to them in their grief. I recently exchanged emails with my then girlfriend and as part of that, I asked for her forgiveness of my crass insensitivity. That's tender time for her. 
So uh, two gentle encouragements arise out of this section of Job for us. Firstly, uh, let's resolve to be sensitive, good friends to those in deep anguish. Uh, let's resolve to be slow to speak and quick to listen. And let's resolve to do all possible to avoid being Job's comforters, who of course were cold comfort. And secondly, uh, where there has been insensitivity in a situation of grief, uh, where we have been insensitive in not effectively caring for others as they grieve, why not pursue forgiveness even now? Uh, can you think of cases where you have been insensitive to others in their grief? How about even now seeking their forgiveness? Or where others have been insensitive to you in your grief, like Job, are you prepared to forgive them in your own heart and to pray to God that he would forgive them? So firstly, Job's friends are forgiven. Secondly, let's move on to look at how Job's character is refined. When God shows up, he doesn't tell Job why Job has been suffering. As the reader, of course, we are privy to what Job is not. We know from the opening chapters that the reason for Job's suffering is to test his faith. Satan maintains that Job's loyalty to God is conditional on his prosperity. Satan says, take everything away and Job will turn away. Interestingly, when God does finally speak to Job, he doesn't make Job aware of this background. However, in the midst of his debate with his friends, Job utters something that reveals real maturity of insight. Even in his darkness, when God seems far away, Job is sure of one thing. Let's go back to chapter 23, verse 9. When he, that is God, is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. You see, Job knows that through this suffering, God will refine his character like gold. And this, of course, is entirely in agreement with the New Testament. Uh, look at 1 Peter 1, verse 6. Sorry, I just unmuted myself there for a moment. Uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while. You may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus is revealed. Why does God allow evil and suffering to come into our lives? Well, to refine us, to change us, to transform us, to be more the people he wants us to be. 
that we saw in those opening chapters of Job, that Satan has to obtain God's permission before he can afflict Job. Uh, God is ultimately in charge. Uh, Satan and God are not two equal and opposite forces fighting against each other. God is still sovereign. And Satan needs God's permission. Uh, Satan wants to destroy and discredit Job. But in the end, the opposite is the case. Job holds fast. And moreover, Job becomes a powerful encouragement to God's people who suffer in every generation since. Job's story encourages patience and perseverance. Uh, James 5 verse 10. Brothers, as an example of patience, in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. How do you think Satan feels about the book of Job? Well, he must wince every time he hears of it. For through Job, God sovereignly channeled Satan's dark, malevolent intentions into a glorious outcome. And he's been doing the same ever since. You see, the book of Job has inflicted massive collateral damage on Satan's cause over the centuries. Because it's encouraged faithfulness rather than faltering. Perseverance rather than apostasy. The book of Job really is the thorn in Satan's flesh. Uh, what is quite incredible is that God allows Satan to accomplish the very opposite of what he sets out to accomplish. Uh, God gives Satan just enough rope so as to hang himself. And God only permits Satan to bring evil and suffering into Job's life in such a way and in such an amount that it actually defeats and reverses Satan's real malevolent intention. And such is also true for us today if we are trusting in Christ. God permits evil and suffering to come into our lives only to the degree that it defeats Satan's actual dark intention for us. Only to the degree that it makes us into the great people God wants us to be. And only to the degree that it ultimately brings God glory. So let's keep going. Uh, we've seen Job's friends are forgiven. Uh, we've secondly seen that Job's character is refined. And finally, we see that Job's fortunes are restored. Uh, chapter 42, verse 10. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. Verse 12. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. When kids are in the midst of hard times, parents offer all sorts of consoling words. And a favourite arrow in the quiver is this one. It will be all right in the end. 
And such an assurance strikes a chord in all our hearts, whether adults or children. Especially in dark times, we all nurture the hope that it will be all right in the end. A part of the process of grieving losses is both coming to terms with the new reality, but also looking forward to a brighter future. We yearn for an end to the heavy heartedness and for a radiant new dawn. And we long for the time when we will look back on this dark chapter from the vantage point of happier times. Maybe sometimes we even restrain ourselves from even thinking about it for fear of disappointment. And for Job, this was his story because it had the happy ending that we all crave. Chapter 42, verse 16. After this, Job lived 140 years. Uh, he saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so he died old and full of years. Dare we believe that Job's story will also be ours, especially when we're in very dark times. You see, the point is that all those who are in Christ are assured a happy ending if they will only persevere like Job. And that happy ending may or may not be in this life, but it will certainly be in the next. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament is one of the great Bible's reflections on the topic of faith. And when in Hebrews 11 I read the account of the faithful, I'm always very aware of the dramatic change of gears in the middle of the passage. At its start, the hall of the famous faithful has a victorious tone to it. Uh, some of the faithful did have a happy ending in this life. Uh, Hebrews 11 verse 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. However, midway through verse 35, there is a dramatic change of key because it continues. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what they had promised. 
You see, of course, in Christ, we are assured a happy ending. Uh, we know that in the new creation, we are promised unending shalom, peace and prosperity in every sphere of life. Uh, it's that sentiment that Tim Keller articulated at the end of his talk on hope, if you remember. Uh, in the new cre creation, Christians will not just get a consolation for their losses in this life. Rather, they will be gifted an entirely different level of life, far above and beyond anything they could have even possibly imagined in this life. You see, the new creation doesn't just fill in the valleys of disappointments in our life now. In the new creation, it lifts the water level way above even the highest mountain experiences of our life now. And it's that hope that encourages us to keep putting one foot in front of another and to persevere like Job in the present. And as that wonderful song reminded us, which we heard before the passage we read to us in Job, in the present, all we have is God we still have him with us. And he continues to walk with us, even when in the dark times like Job, we may not be able to see him. We know he is still there, walking with us and helping us. Let me pray. Lord God, uh, thank you for that glorious conclusion to the book of Job and to Job's story, and how we see that in the end, uh, all was well for him. And we thank you that ultimately that is our story when we trust in Christ, that you work sovereignly in our lives in the present. You only allow uh, suffering and evil to come into our life and, and our world at uh, the extent to which it fulfills your good purposes for us and for your church. And we thank you that you walk with us in the darkness. You never leave us. You've assured us of that. And you will one day bring us to happier times, whether it be in this life or the next. So thank you that we have that sure hope and that you do help us through your spirit to keep going one day at a time. Amen.